start looking at John chapter 6. So um, as we pray, I'm going to read this scripture so we can, you know, let's, let's um, bow our heads and begin to pray as I'm reading the scripture. And you can pray silently or just listen with your eyes closed. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, Father, now we ask that these words of yours through the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled in our midst right now, in this hour, that your word, your holy scripture, would go forth and um, it would accomplish its purpose, your purpose, in our lives during this time. And so we ask this through your eternal word, Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Amen. This is the reason why it's um, done, because I love that purpose. I think it should have been proposed. Did I... Yeah, you had to accomplish that which our purpose and shall. Yeah, it is purpose. Yeah. Did we, I did read. Yeah, it was last week. I'd like to. I, oh, I see. Yeah, I read it last week. And then I, it is recent. That's yeah. why. But I, I, I'm so drawn to this passage that I, and I see how much it relates to John. And that was what it, I think it, you might remember I did that one off Bible study for one week while Andrew was out of town in the fall. And I used Isaiah 55, and I just, I just really sensed we were right in the middle of John 6 then, and we're still in John 6. But um, and <laughs> John 6 is a really long, long chapter. Um, and and it, it, the word of God is so clear in John that the word is both Jesus Christ, and then the word of God is the Bible, which is so great. So the Bible, bear, the word of God, Scripture, bears witness to Jesus Christ, and both fulfill the purposes of God in our lives. So um, Jesus goes out from the Father, and his purpose is to redeem all humanity, right? To go and to live and to die and to rise again. That's his purpose in coming into the world, and you see it so clearly in John. Um, so that idea of Jesus' purpose in going out from the Father, going, leaving heaven, um, uh, forsaking all that he's known as the eternal word, as God, you know, and then becoming man, becoming incarnate, so that he's both fully man and fully God. And we see that in the, in the prologue to John, which we, we didn't really touch on last week, and we won't, I, you know, I know Andrew touched on it probably, when did he teach on John 1? It was probably a long time ago, right? Maybe a year ago? No, September, a year ago. September, a year ago, yeah. So, um, um, but now, but as we begin, what I'd love to do, if you've got a chance to read again those first chapters, um, I'd love to know, if you didn't, that's fine, but I'd love to know if you have any questions about John chapters 1 through 6. I'm opening wide the door, <laughs> because if you have a question about one of those things, it's very likely that someone else will have a question too, and so it can be helpful to ask it in this context, and we can talk about it together. Anybody have a question? Is this the same John all the way Genre of yeah. scripture. It's called Apocalypse, and it's most clearly 
um, similar to Daniel. Like mm -hmm. Daniel, you know all those visions yeah. in Daniel? Um, so, uh, and there are other extra biblical writings that talk about similar visions and things like mm -hmm. that. And so the, the revelation of St. John is coming, and that's what the whole title of the book is, is coming out of um, that history, that genre of apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic, the word in the Greek, the word apocalyptic comes from the Greek word, and what it means is to reveal, to lift the veil, and you get a vision for what's going on in heaven in Revelation. Okay, I found my verse. You found your verse? Okay, Barbara. Is, is the healing of the poo near Elias? Yes, in John chapter 5. And it's verse 14. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. I didn't think that we were afflicted because of what we sinned. And then this says that we are. Okay, so, and, and Jesus talks about this in John chapter 9. So, one of the things to look at is, oh, three, well, re, chapter 5 and chapter 9 go together, essentially. They're both healings of men who've been um, in dire straits for a long time. So, chapter 5, there's this lame man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Um, and he, okay, so, he, he is, when you look at the, this passage and you study it in depth, he is responding to Jesus in a very ambivalent way. Let's just look in chapter 6, or in verse 6 of chapter 5. Jesus sees him and asks him, do you want to be healed? Do you hear what his answer is? He doesn't say yes, does he? He complains, right? Sir, where are you? Six. And chapter 5, verse 6. So there's, there's the sick man says, Jesus asks him, do you want, see, I have a red letter Bible, it's really nice, but I don't think there's any, you know, special virtue of a red letter Bible of it, oh, but, but it just means I can find Jesus. Um, so the sick man says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. There is this belief about this pool that there was an angel. This is, this is not scripture, you have to, you know, I studied this passage and that's how I know that there was an angel that came and stirred up the water in this special pool in Jerusalem. And then so there was this belief that the first person in the pool after the water was stirred up. So I don't know if there was a jet coming into the pool or something like that. Or what it was. I mean, I believe it's possible that there was an angel stirring up the water. But we don't know. The pool has actually been found in Jerusalem. It's really interesting. Um, and, so the, and it's probably one of those hot springs pools. And the first person into the pool was healed after the water was stirred up. But I always thought about this. Can you imagine being paralyzed and being thrown into a pool? I know. You'd, you'd either die or be healed. So he has a significant choice. Right, I know, I know. Would you like to be healed or would you like to die? Um, so uh, he, he's ambivalent about his healing. And maybe he thinks that Jesus is asking him about being healed in the pool. Um, we're not really sure what... And it is a cryptic interaction, I will give you that. He's been scared all of his life. Exactly. He's living in fear. And um, so, uh, sir, when I, when, and he's complaining <laughs> to sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. He needs help getting into the pool, and he also needs help, he needs someone there to keep, you know, to get him out of the pool if he's not healed and is going to drown. Um, and so, um, but Jesus right there heals him. Take it, get up, take up your bed, and walk. 
And one thing you'll see in, um, in, especially in the Synoptic Gospels, when I say Synoptic Gospels, you know what I mean, right? I mean Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In those Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is he heals people and simultaneously says to them, your sins are forgiven. Um, to show that he is um, who he is, um, essentially. And, and you see the Pharisees revolting against this idea and saying, who do you think you are? Only God can for forgive sins. You know, they had people who were able to heal other people kind of in some way. We don't know what they were doing to heal people because we know that Jesus is healing people because specifically of who he is and the authority that he has over creation as God. Um, but, okay, so wait, let me rein in my thought here. So in the synoptics, they have, there is this healing and forgiveness of sins combined together. Um, but Jesus is very clear in chapter 9 with the man born blind that um, his blindness is not caused by sin. So you see that um, in chapter 9, if you just keep your hand in chapter 5, and we'll go back to the rest of the interaction between Jesus and this man. In John chapter 9, um, Jesus passes by and he sees a man blind from birth. And his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? They assume, the assumption is that there was some sin that caused the blindness in this man. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned. So he doesn't rule out the possibility that there could be some negative, action, negative consequences, negative health consequences from sin. When you think about it, and um, I bet you can all think of an example in your mind of a specific health consequence that would come about through persistent sin. I, mean, I can think of some that are not polite to mention in company. You know, you know and, and so to say, um, and so there, it's not that, you know, people, some people will use the language, God is smiting, you know? You know what I'm talking about? And they'll say your affliction is because of your sin. It's never for other people to say that. Um, and yet there are very, there are just cause and effect actions. Um, one example, uh, you know, uh, is, you know, certain, certain lung diseases, obviously, can be caused by consistent smoking. Is smoking a sin? Well, that's a whole other question. But um, there is some way in which smoking does do damage to your body in the moment. And that damage accumulates and has consequences. Um, I'm thinking also of certainly sexual things that we think about immediately that um, open yourself up to physical consequences that, um, that you could live out for the rest of your life. There's always forgiveness and pardon and restoration and even healing at times for that. But here, what this idea is, is that this random sin, this random health problem is caused by sin. So essentially what the Jewish leaders are asking him, it's equivalent to saying the analogy, it would be as though the rabbis were saying, well, and I heard this happen at 9-11. Well, 9-11 happened in New York City because of the moral decay. And they're thinking specifically sexual moral decay. You know they were, right? The moral decay in New York City. Well, that doesn't correlate. Is They would say, and so I've heard people saying after 9-11, God judged New York by causing that to happen as a result of um, the, the moral decay there. Those are things that no human can say. We cannot say that. We don't know that. 
And and that's not in God's character to just go smiting randomly. Because if he were to start smiting for sin, we would never be here. None of us would be here, right? So um, so there's no direct correlation, cause and effect, rationally between those two ideas. Nor is there that direct cause and effect relationship rationally between sin and blindness. You know, in this situation, and and. So that is, Jesus is very clearly, clearly saying that kind of condemnation for physical ailments, you know, and saying that it's a result of moral failure is not, not for human beings to say at all. And, and, um, and so he's very quickly shutting the door on that. He says, you don't know what this suffering that this man has gone through is caused by. You don't know why this man is suffering. And that answers the question of why. Why do we suffer? We don't know always why we suffer. I mean, I think very many, many of us will um, see God face to face one day after we die and we'll say, why? Why did this have to happen? And sometimes later on in our lives, we get a sense for maybe why some things happen in our lives specifically to us. But there is always that question that we'll want to ask face to face and say, show me why this happened. I'd really like to know why this happened. Um, and so Jesus is saying, we, we don't know. You can't just say that this man is suffering because of his sin. So he's very, again, I'll just reiterate, shutting the door on that. But he's saying, instead, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. How beautiful is that? That some suffering um, ends up um, causing Jesus' name to be exalted and pointing to Jesus um, and whether it's through victory over that trial and suffering or through faithfulness and um, trust in him in the midst of it, all of that brings glory to God and glory to Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is that this, this ailment, this blindness of this man is going to bring me glory. And that's, that's, that's the, the purpose for it. Um, so then going back to, any questions about that before I go back to chapter 5? Well, that seems like Katrina was God's judgment against New Orleans. <laughs> That's something we'd like to ask him face to face. We'll have to see. I mean, but the thing is, I don't know a lot about New Orleans, but I I know that there were people who were probably not involved in um, in morally questionable behavior who were affected by Katrina, and that's why that's why you can't say that because the Southern Baptists always jumped on. I, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. We can't do this. You know, it's for God to, to tell us at the end why certain things happen. So then with this, this man who was in the pool, go back to five, he has not, um, I think he's actually done something that Jesus is specifically pointing to. He's healed. It, I know. We're jumping back and forth. We're going back to five, which is Barbara's original question. Why in chapter five does Jesus say to this man, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you? Um, I think he's very specific. Okay, so this man is then confronted by the religious authorities. They say, it's, your, it's the Sabbath, and you're not supposed to carry your bed around. You weren't supposed to carry things around on the Sabbath. So who is, who, um, and the man says, but I was healed. And the guy who healed me said, take up your bed and walk. I'm going to obey him if he healed me. And um, then they start to criticize, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him and said, 
See you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I think there is an influence on the part of this man about Jesus. If you were just healed from a 35-year-long illness right there on the spot, would you want to find out the name of the person who healed you? Would you want to know something about him? Would you want to, who is this person who healed me? This man doesn't know. Or if he knows, if he actually asks, he doesn't have the courage to say it to the, to the authorities. Um, so he is taking the easy way out, and it shows that he is, in fact, ambivalent about his healing, and he's ambivalent about Jesus. He's not really going to follow Jesus. And I think that's why Jesus is saying to him, stop sinning. Does that make sense? That was, that was a tough one, Barbara. <laughs> well, stop the chumps. Are there any questions about that before we move on or before we ask other questions? That was a, that's a very, it's a very good question. You sure? Anything not make sense about that to you? Okay. It's okay if it doesn't. No fear here. Um, and any other questions about chapters 1 through 5 before we look at 6 a little bit more? It's a lot of material to cover, isn't it? There's a lot of meat in it. I could just read, and those chapters are long, too. Reading one chapter is intense. Someone pointed out yesterday that there's a lot of narration going on. There are a lot of things that happen in chapters one through five. It's pretty jam-packed with, um, with lots of exciting events, a lot of healings. Okay, um, so just to rec uh, recap from last week, that the book of signs, we talked about being the first half of the book of John, and the book of signs reveals Jesus' identity, who he is, that he is fully God and fully man, sent from the Father, and the Messiah. One thing I didn't say last week was that all of this discussion of the festivals of Judaism, you'll see in just about... Um, almost every chapter, there's a Jewish festival. And the reason why John is so clearly highlighting, underlining that there is a festival going on at the time that Jesus is doing whatever he's doing is because he's showing that by what he is doing, Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of the Jewish hopes from the festival. So, for example, um, in the chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 6, it is at the time of Passover. It says in verse 4, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And, and the feast of Passover in the Jewish cycle of festivals came right alongside the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So um, it recalled all of these images of bread, you know, the bread that the Israelites had to bake without yeast so that they could escape from Egypt quickly and still have food to eat. Um, and then it also harkens to that same era in Israel's history when they were wandering in the wilderness and they didn't have any bread to eat. And they cried out to the Lord and they cried out to Moses. Actually, they grumbled. We'll see that later on. They grumbled and said, why did you take us out of Egypt where there were leeks and pomegranates and everything we could possibly want to eat? How quickly they forgot about the slavery part. But why, you know, um, why did you take us out of Egypt and now we're going to starve and die here in the wilderness? And Moses is burdened by them and goes to the Lord and says, all right, what are you going to do about this? This is too much for me to handle. And the Lord feeds them with manna from heaven. So 
Can you see how, in what we've studied about John chapter 6 so far, how that plays an important role in what Jesus says? How that forms this background before Jesus is saying to them, first of all, right before Jesus is feeding them, feeding 5,000 people miraculously from a few loaves and fishes, and then, um, and then also t- describing and explaining what just happened by saying, I am the bread of life. He is superseding um, the Jewish expectation. He is fulfilling all Jewish hopes, and so he's showing that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Um, so that's another aspect of this book of signs. Um, so again, the book of si- the signs reveal Jesus' identity and um, his purpose. So that um, his purpose in coming, his what is his mission on earth? His mission, I mean, we could all write a phrase to try and figure out what is Jesus' mission. But we know from John that his mission is to reconcile men and women to God through his death um, so that those who believe in him would have eternal life, right? That John 3.16 is just the greatest summary of um, of what Jesus is doing in the Gospel of John, why Jesus came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it talks about that in that purpose statement we talked about at the end of John, eternal life. He wants those who believe in him to have eternal life. Do you remember the signs that we saw in chapters 2 and six, two through 6? There's the wedding at Cana, which I'll be preaching on on Sunday. Lots of John for me. Um, and there's um, the healing of the official son in chapter 4. There's this healing of this man at the pool that we just talked about from Barbara, with Barbara. And it says specifically, as we get to chapter 6, it says specifically that this feeding of the 5,000 is a sign. In verse 14, um, we see... Um, that they call it a sign. John is specifically calling it a sign. So what happens in this feeding of the 5,000? Well, Jesus um, brings, he um, miraculously provides bread um, for all of these people. And not just enough bread, but more than enough bread. How many baskets are left over, right? Twelve, which is a very important number. A, fulfill, a, fill, a number for the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why there are 12 apostles. Jesus specifically chose 12. Um, and then um, one of the things that Andrew talked about that I think is so incredible is he talked about that required faith of Jesus' disciples, um, that they were not able to provide enough bread for all of these people. They had to believe that Jesus could. But what you see is that um, Jesus tests Philip in verse 5. Jesus sees the large crowd, and Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And remember what, does anybody remember what Andrew said about that? I thought it was so great. Not a test, but um, it stuck with me. He said that Philip goes into this panic moment because Philip is the kind of person who, um, when he sees that 25 people are coming to his house for Thanksgiving, he's planning months in ahead, and he's going to go to the he's going to go to the supermarket. He has everything planned. He has it all um, laid away, and so then um, he's able to control it. He's able to do things. He's a Type A personality. He's able to get everything in order and and um, do it all himself. And then um, and then when something comes and happens and 
is totally out of the ordinary. He has no idea what to do. And he's panicked because he thinks that he has to do it. He, has to, he thinks, oh no, Jesus is asking us to provide bread for all these people. Okay, so he's starting to think of the plan. And so Jesus says, or John says in, chapter, in verse 6, Jesus said this to test Philip, but Jesus knew what he would do. And I, could, I just sense this note of panic in Philip's response to Jesus. 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. He's already doing the math calculations in his head, right? And then there's a different um, portrait of discipleship, and that's Andrew. Uh, and one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So you get these two pictures of discipleship. They're not, neither one of them is perfect, but you see that um, there is this panicked response um, and this sense, this, um, this fear that, oh no, I have to provide, I have to do all of this to be um, a good disciple, to be acceptable to Jesus, and how am I going to do this? Um, and then there's the response of Andrew, who's, who says, this is impossible. I don't know how to, I don't know how to do this but he brings to Jesus what they have. This is, it, it's, a very, it's a very different place. He's surrendered. He says, I don't know how this is going to happen, and I can't do it. He's honest about himself and his own abilities. And then he brings to Jesus what he has, what they have. And say, I, says, trustingly, I don't know what you can do with this, but here, you know, here, here it is. Maybe you can do something with it. So there's more faith on Andrew's part. Any questions about that? Do you remember Andrew saying that? Maybe I imagined it. <laughs> um, so he feeds the 5,000, and what happens? This is one of the downsides of the sign, of these miracles. Um, and here we see, when the people saw the sign that he had done in verse 14, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And then, what are they going to do? They, they have this amazing profession about who Jesus is, or who they think he is. Do you, the prophet, um, there's ex, the expectation that there would be a prophet greater than Moses that would come and um, that uh, new signs would be done that would be even greater than the signs that were done through Moses, the miracles that were done through Moses. That's what they're saying. This guy's even better than Moses. Um, and then perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So when they see that he's done all these miracles, they think, we want him to lead us. Yeah. Yeah, we want to have free bread all the time. This is great. We want, um, yeah, that's right. We're going to make him king. And so they're going to force him to be king on their timeline and um, with their agenda. And Jesus, of course, will have none of it. Um, and, he, and he withdraws. Um, they seek him for physical provision. Um, and, um, and in fact, they try later on to manipulate him into giving them more bread. And Andrew talked about this as, as well. So later on, Jesus goes to the other side of the, of the lake, right? And I'm skipping, I'm skipping the walking on water, which is amazing um, in and of itself. But um, in verse 22, the crowd remained on the other side of the, the sea, and, and they start to stop Jesus. Um, they remained on the other side of the sea. They saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. They're really tracking Jesus. They're trying to find him. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They're stalking him. 
they're looking for more free food. They're hungry again. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus uh, very perceptively, of course, because he's Jesus, just cuts right through it and says, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs and saw what the signs were pointing to, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Your bellies were full and you were happy. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. He's trying to draw them up into that higher understanding of what the sign was really about. The sign was not about free food. The sign of the multiplication of loaves was really that Jesus is, in fact, the bread of life and that there is spiritual sustenance in and through him um, that nothing else can provide. And he continues on talking about this. They're trying to manipulate him into making more bread. Again, you see this back and forth. I find it kind of comical. Um, in verse 30, they say, um, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They're trying to get him to make more bread, right? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Aren't you going to give us more bread? That's the subtext. More bread, more bread. And Jesus says that, said it again. He's trying to get them into this. He's trying to get them out of this obsession with the physical provision. I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He is the bread. Jesus is the bread. And then, and they say, okay, well, we'll give us this bread always. But you still don't get it. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, there is no more hungering and thirsting when Jesus is around. Um, there's no more longing after things that don't satisfy. Or the longing um, that we have for the things that don't satisfy is actually something that's meant to be fulfilled in Jesus. Um, that, and I think about, well, what are those things that we long for? What are the things that we try to fill our spiritual needs with? Um, we need spiritually something um, that we can only get from Jesus. And yet we find ourselves chasing after other things and very often I find that these are the things that take up most of my time or the things that I care the most about. And they can be good things even that we seek to, um, to fill that spiritual need with. And I think for um, women, for those, for us, and we can talk about this here, it's so great, just all of us women, it can be so specific to us in a different way than it is to men. Um, and not to make an overgeneralization or an oversimplification, oversimpli but um, I don't think men care about how they look or how they dress quite in the same way we do. Their worth is not tied into it, the way we allow our worth to be tied into. Um, you know, what kind of brand clothes we're wearing or um, the fashion, if we're keeping up on fashion or um, how we look. Oh, was her hair done or not? Well, it was not done usually for me. Or um, what, you know, especially, you know, with the exercise race, it's often, the sad thing is, is we often make it a competition between all of us, between other us and other women. And we say, usually we do this um, lesser than, greater than. And I had an acting teacher in college who um, talked, he would just do this, and you knew what he meant. You were supposed to, this was shorthand for, uh, you know, 
<laughs> and he would tell us that we were doing this. It's shorthand for measuring up, measuring yourself against someone else. Because when you measure yourself against someone else, do you remember? This is a math sign. I don't know if you, I don't, any of you remember math, but sometimes these math symbols stick in my head. It's a lesser than or a greater than sign instead of an equal sign, right, which is just the two lines together. So there's this lesser than, greater than, lesser than, greater than, and when we're trying to measure up, trying to be worthy in anyone else's eyes, in God's eyes especially, um, but really in anyone else's eyes, we do this measuring up, and I find it so often can be in all these areas. It can be in the areas of dress, you know, how do we look, our appearance. We can be how much we eat. I don't know how many times um, I've sat down and I, someone will actually say or think, oh, are you eating that? I'm a big fan of dessert, so I'll often get dessert. And I know, I know that, you know, it, it, you know, people, we all feel insecure about things based on the other people around us and very often the other women around us. Or um, it could be about our marriages, how our marriages start. How, what does the ring look like? What was the wedding like? Oh, what does he do for a living, right? Or um, how the marriages hold up over time. And we see this so often, not just in the way we think about other women, but in the way that we talk to other women about other women. Did you see that so-and-so separated? Um, how our children perform, whether it's how our children perform in school, um, what are their grades, what sport are they playing, what instrument are they playing, uh, are they volunteering wherever? Oh, was she the homecoming queen? You must be so proud. And those are all good things. Um, but when we look to them and we say that our worth depends on how we measure up in any one of those areas or in any one of another area, we're filling ourselves with food that does not satisfy um, there are any number of competitions that we can unwittingly enroll ourselves in. And they don't lead to life. They lead to death. They lead to um, that horrible feeling that we don't measure up or that fear that uh, we don't measure up. Um, they feed that fear that we don't measure up. Or they can lead to judgment that other people don't measure up. You know, if we have it all together. Either lesser than, greater than, none of that satisfies that deep-seated spiritual hunger that we have and that need to be found worthy in God's eyes, that need to be found um, lovable in God's eyes. And yet in Jesus Christ, we are received just as we are. We are loved exactly where we are without the need to step it up a little bit or to, um, to uh, look a little bit better or to act a little bit better or to have a better marriage or to have um, smarter kids or more successful children or how many grandchildren or um, how far away do they live, what do they do. Any of those competitions can only starve us from um, our real need, which is to be just loved by God and received by God in Jesus Christ. And that is what he delights to do. And um, when we look at this passage, as we continue through, you know, in the passage for today, as we get down through this discourse, Jesus keeps talking about how he is the bread of life. Um, and he comes down from heaven. And that through believing in him, there is eternal life, which is not just life 
throughout the ages, but eternal life in the here and now, abundant life. And in that abundant life, there's joy um, and peace. And so he keeps saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And, um, and the Jews, the Jews, which means all of those people in the crowd, are grumbling about him because he is equating himself with God. In verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they say, we know who you are. You didn't come from heaven. We know your parents. Um, and um, Jesus continues to say he's the bread that comes down from heaven. That's what I love about John. If you didn't get it the first time, he's going to say it about five more times. You'll keep having a chance to hear him say it. Um, again, Jesus says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Um, I think of you know all of what I just said about those competitions, that um, self-justifying, um, that uh, approach to worthiness in which we have some measure of control or some perceived measure of control um, in the world around us as we try to measure up to standards that we set for ourselves or that other people set for us. That measuring up causes death, it, spiritual death. It, it um, it's not true bread. It's it's manna, but not the um, not the bread of life, Jesus Christ. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it. I'm in verse 50, and not die. And then Jesus says, "I am the living bread that came down from heaven." Again, that's the third time he said he's the bread of life. I am the living bread. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And now it gets really good. It was our, it's, it's always good, it's scripture, but in the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is when it gets weird for the people following him in the crowd and they think, what is he, okay, we didn't know what he was talking about before, now we really don't know what he's talking about, and now we're starting to get offended. Because what he's saying, Jesus is saying, is that the bread that he will give is his flesh, it's not his words, it's not his deeds. Jesus is a great teacher, he's the best teacher of all time. But it's not his words. His words do give life, but they don't give that eternal life and that freedom. Um, his deeds, his deeds of compassion, his healings, he is a compassionate man. He's the epitome of love, right? But it's not his love, um, his loving deeds on earth that impart to us that life unending and that fill that spiritual hunger. No, in fact, it, he's saying right here, the, um, the bread that he will give for the life of the world is Jesus' very flesh. Yes, he's a great teacher. Yes, he's the epitome of love. But none of that gives us eternal life. None of that gives us that salvation. Only his flesh. And again, this is where it gets, it gets weird. The Jews started disputing among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He's talking about us eating his body. Can you imagine, before we had all of this language about communion, remember, they didn't know what we know about communion. How could they have thought? It, they weren't sure if he was, they didn't know if he was talking spiritually. Some of them might have really thought he was talking literally. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus gets even more offensive. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Eating and drinking that he's talking about here, the verbs in the Greek for the eating, is like crunching. Unless you crunch the flesh of, of um, the Son of Man, 
Sounds like cannibalism to me. That's probably why they're all scratching their heads. Sounds pretty creepy, right? What is he talking about? And then he goes on, he makes it even more explicit. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Their misunderstanding um, is, it's very literal. They think he's talking literally. Are they willfully misunderstanding him because the spiritual truth is too much for them to bear? Quite possibly. But what it does when we hear them misunderstanding him is that we as Christians who know about communion, who know about what will happen later, we hear that and we say, no, don't you get it? It's not about cannibalism. It's about spiritual food and drink. It is about spiritual food and drink because that spiritual food and drink is available to us because Jesus himself gave, gave his body as an offering and a sacrifice to God. It's, you know, in that first verse that we read, or not first verse, but verse 51, the bread that he will give for the life of the world is his flesh. He literally hands over his body, and that's what he does when he goes to the cross. He goes willingly to his death, knowing that by dying, he will then, um, he will then save the people, his people, all those he loves, everyone, from sin, all those who desire it, from sin. Um, so that noshing, that chewing, that what does that mean for us who believe in Jesus? What does that mean? Um, it, I think part of it is that chewing on him, you know, that sense of um, receiving him and grappling with who he is and what he has done for us. It's not just a quick, um, oh, I inhale, you know, some people eat very fast. I'm like the slowest eater in America because I get indigestion if I don't eat, if I don't eat slowly. And my family calls me, they tease me all the time about being the last person who's done, you know. I am always, at family dinners, I am always the last person. Um, eating. Part of it's because I can't talk and do anything else, so I have to, um, if I'm going to talk at all, I, I just abandon my food and start talking. Um, but then part of it is that I just am such a slow eater. I find this even by myself when single, so I eat alone, that I just graze all day long because I don't actually sit down and eat something all at once. I'm a grazer. I eat slowly. Um, but there, that's good spiritually in this sense of grazing on Jesus, that constant um, connection with him and the processing through what he's doing, the, um, the chewing on who Jesus is for us spiritually. And the chewing on, we're chewing on not, yes, we're, we're, we're um, reflecting on his words and we're reflecting on his deeds, but what we are reflecting on most of all is his offering of his own self for us. And that's what we do at the Advent, right? We do that all the time. You hear the gospel every week. And it's because in returning and hearing the gospel again, there's life. In that renewing our faith, remembering that, um, that the hunger that we have spiritually is filled only by Jesus, only by knowing that because of his death, we are then worthy before God. We are worthy to stand before God and to be in relationship with him. Um, so he goes on and to say, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That abiding is staying, remaining in Jesus. And so just as I just, I just said, you know, as we hear this good news again, 
we abide in him, we remain in him, as we receive, as we masticate upon um, that truth that we are loved by God because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Um, and that um, abiding is a passive idea. Um, it's a passive reception that we receive what God has done for us. Um, and so it's, uh, there's nothing we can do to justify ourselves, to win whatever competition we've enrolled ourselves in. There's nothing we can do to gain a foothold with God. Uh, we can just give up and give up the competition, give up the race give up our plans um, to um, our goals. Uh, and that doesn't mean we don't set goals, but rather that we uh, don't think we can control the outcome. Um, and the best image I have for that is the image taken from co communion itself. I'm very, I'm very tangibly affected by physical things. And um, Jesus knows this, not just about me. It's not just all about me. But for everybody, we are in flesh people. We're body we, you know, yes, we have spirits and also, you know, hearts and minds, but we have bodies. And um, just as God in the beginning of all creation says, and it was good, he says that about our bodies. Our bodies are good. We are meant to um, be in our bodies. And sometimes our bodies can become our enemy, you know, if you're thinking, well, I just wish that would go away. Or just, you know, why is, why is this aching or this doing whatever it's doing? Um, but G in giving us sacraments, in Jesus telling us to be baptized and to receive communion, one of the things that's going on is that um, we receive tangibly, when we go up for communion, we receive tangibly a tangible physical reminder for us of what Jesus has done for us in dying on the cross. We receive it, and um, what I love about it is the way that we receive it. I often, I, I have often given communion in other settings, you know, where it's, um, usually Episcopalians know, but it's fine. In different places, you do different things, and there are different traditions. Some traditions, you take, you take the bread for yourself, and you take the bread, and you take, you might take a cup, and drink, eat and drink, um, but in our tradition, what you do, you go up, right, and you receive, and you, you, you don't, sometimes I'll get grabbers, and the grabbers are fine, but I'm always aware of the difference, that there's this, I bring nothing to the table. I bring no righteousness of my own. I, I all to Jesus, I claim, right? I have nothing to bring, but I open my hands, and I receive what God has done for me in him again. I receive again what God has done for me in him. It's the same thing with the cup. Um, do you ever wish you could just grab the cup and just like, okay, stop trying to lift it to my face, and I just need to control the cup and have it in my hands and drink just like I would drink from a normal cup. Um, there are practical reasons why we don't give people the cup and just say, here, you hold it, drink it. Um, that you know, the, the people serving the wine at communion, they um, hold on to the cup, and so you have to guide it so that we can actually get it in your mouth, but you don't get to control it. And it's the same thing with... Um, with Jesus, when with God himself, and with even the circumstances of our own lives. We are passive in receiving from God, and it's from there that we um, gain life. We bring nothing to the table, and yet we gain everything. Um, and so we can walk away with that, um, with that um, knowledge that we are fully loved, fully seen, fully known, fully received because of Jesus. Any questions about that?
That was a lot of material to cover. And we'll look, next week we'll look at what happens with this tough word about the eating and drinking of Jesus' um, flesh and blood.